you as I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Hate is swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. All right, all right, Connecticut, New Haven. First, a big thank you to uh, 103.5 New Haven Radio, community radio, uh, and a thank you to Tom Ficklin for this time. And happy holidays to our, our listeners and everyone out there. Today, I got something that doesn't make uh, CNN. Today, I got something that will never, ever be on Fox. Today, I have something that never makes NPR. Today, I have something that will never make MSNBC's Education Nation. Today, I bring you the truth. I bring you two of our nation's premier voices on equity in education. I'm bringing you Dr. Bruce Baker. He writes all the policy papers over there. And I'll newly Dr. Kodal, you know, who uh, is a longtime social justice warrior in Connecticut. So gentlemen, uh, this is Dr. Turner. Hello, people out there. Happy holidays and all that stuff. And today I told people that we're sort of like the ghost of, you know, Charles Dickens story, you know, and I'm the ghost of Christmas past. So I was there in 63, eight years old with, uh, at Dr. King's speech in Washington with, with holding my grandfather's hand. So I'm the ghost of Christmas past, you know? And I said that Robert's kind of, uh, kind of like the Christmas present and Bruce, you're gonna be the Christmas future. And the three of us together can change the world with the truth. All right, so how about we begin with uh, Bruce, you're next to me on my screen. So if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your passion and then we'll get this party started. Okay, so I am uh, I'm Bruce Baker. Um, I actually, I think I might be the present. I think Rob's the future. Um, so, uh, you're so, right. Let's see, um, I uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a professor at the University of Miami. Um, it's a little chilly today um, compared to usual, but not bad at all compared to where you guys are at. Um, I uh, I've been working on issues. Uh, related to school funding equity in particular for about 20 years. Um, and I think, you know, the, the more I've worked on it over time, the more, and on the one hand, I've gotten frustrated. I've become more kind of impassioned about figuring out, you know, what, what are these disparities? How deep are they? Why are they so intractable? Why are they hitting the same places over and over again? And how can we fix this? Like, how can we fix this in states like Connecticut that have such great wealth and could find better ways to share that, but just don't. So, you know, I've, I've gotten into, I've moved from doing my typical academic writing to doing a lot more policy reports and working with states, um, both with states and I guess against states um, in, in state courts um, to try to really put pressure on to, uh, to fix these things. 
and also kind of keeping an eye out for these kind of rising young scholars who are ready to kind of take it into the future and uh, and break down some of those uh, break down some of those barriers, some of those walls. And and Rob and I have uh, done some writing together on that, focused on the districts that uh, that really seem to be taking the hit repeatedly over and over again, including those in Connecticut. So from there, I think I could hand it to uh, to Rob. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, and thank you, Jesse, for having us on the show. And thank you, uh, Tom Ficklin, for having us on WNHH Community Radio. Um, and again, happy holidays, as, as Jesse mentioned. Uh, I'm Robert Cotto. Um, I'm sort of uh, maybe take a, took a different direction from Bruce. I worked as a, um, a, school, a school board member here in Hartford, Connecticut for uh, almost a decade, uh, worked with families, worked with educators uh, to try to make a better system. And uh, it was sort of an uphill battle in many cases, um, and sort of I've taken that and and my my experience with that and as being a teacher as well, um, getting more into sort of academic work and try to think about you know did the school choice stuff work in the way that we thought it would? Did the school closures work in the way that we thought it did? And how did families respond to that? And more and more, I'm sort of uh, connecting to Bruce and other 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 folks scholars. Um, uh, to think about like the context, right? And including resources that are available for schools and families inside and outside of schools. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in terms of equity, but um, that's sort of where, where I'm leaning towards and what I'm looking for. And I hope we have, we're gonna have some conversation today about you know what that looks like now and what it looks like in the future in terms of like supporting uh, public schools. Sure, and, and when I look at it, when I look at this thing, Connecticut, I, I'm from New Jersey, which has, fair share of problems, and I've taught in Arizona, which also had its fair share of problems. I can't find really any states that have done justice to black and brown and special education children. Some have done better than others, but I haven't really found that uh, golden goal, as we would say in the World Cup kind of concept over there. But Connecticut, I arrived here in 20, no, no, 2019-97, and I immediately the cases that popped up, which you two gentlemen are well-versed in, was the Chef versus O'Neill case. And I remember that one. And I thought, hmm, well, that's interesting. And I remember I looked down, and, and Robert's going to share some light on that. There's a lot more equity in that case. But also, there was a piece that I said, well, you're only, only going to save 25%, uh, that concept over there. But it was an important decision. Uh, the, the, the quest I, I can look at, I remember when Betty Sternberg was the commissioner of education, and I asked her, how much money have we spent on Creck schools, ACES schools, West Con, uh, East Con, all these schools over there, you know, in, in the state, because now the state is one of the largest districts, uh, educational districts in, in, in Connecticut. And I remember asking, I said, well, she, I, she gave me a figure at the time, I don't know, it was like $7 billion. I, don't quote me exactly on it. And I said, uh, Commissioner Sternberg, what if we gave that $7 billion to those 19 priority school districts? Do you not think we might see something different? But that's that one piece. And then the, the case that really caught my, my eye is a case that you two were personally involved in, the CJEF case. A case, and, and, and I know so many people that testified. I think uh, Dr. Baker testified. I, uh, I met uh, Diane DeBreeze, uh, God rest her soul, a real social justice warrior. And, and I remember being saying, we've got to win this. And I think we won the first round, if I'm remember. I'm hoping you gentlemen will, will clarify the, 
the stuff. I we won the first round, and I said yes, yes, and I was like, whoa, this is exactly what we needed. And then on January 18th, uh, 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court threw our children under the bus, in my opinion. They turned around and, and said, well, you know, yes, it's un inequitable. But black and brown and special education children, adequate, basic is good enough. Access to that is good enough for you. Well, gentlemen, to me, that, 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 that signified the Connecticut Supreme Court making one of the most immoral decisions. We go to our courts and uh, to try to, you know, remedy things that our legislatures are not willing to do. Uh, and, and they did throw a little caveat. The judge did say, you know, this isn't a court remedy that's needed, but a legislative remedy. And I, I'd like to get a little reflection. I'm gonna ask you to start, uh, Dr. Baker, on, on kind of just quick remembering on that trail. Uh, starting with maybe uh, a, you, you can handle the the CJF issue, and I'm going to ask Robert because we had a little conversation. The, it gave me a piece of the Chef O'Neill case that I had forgotten. So, all right, Dr. Baker, could you take us enlighten us? So the uh, the, the CJF case. Um, one of the things about a lot of these cases are that they are they are technically and conceptually very complicated for a district court judge to really get a grip on and understand. So there was a lot. And, and the, the district court judge, uh, Mo Kausher, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his name, right? So judge, he, he was, you know, my understanding was that he was actually assigned the case because of its complexity. And he was often assigned these kind of complex constitutional and other, other cases, although they're, they're vastly different areas of law. Um, and, and he seemed very involved in trying to get a handle on it. I mean, I, I remember um, spending a lot of time. One of the things that happens in these cases when you're an expert witness on the stand during your direct examination, instead of the lawyers continuing to ask you questions, the, the judge will start just asking, asking you questions. I think I went back and forth with him you know, repeatedly around this question of these are the problems with the formula, these are where it falls short, and these are the kids in the districts that are most disadvantaged by that. Um, and, you know, he, he kept, he, he pushed on me to say, you know, how bad are these problems, and then tried to push me to the point of, and are they unconstitutional, which is the, the, that last question is the one he has to answer, not me. <laughs> and in fact, I said that at the end of the conversation. That's, I said, well, that, that one's yours. Um, the, the interesting twist for me was, yes, he wrote this lengthy, wonderful and interesting and sometimes bizarre lower court ruling. And in doing so, he crafted his own legal standard of reasonableness to, uh, in relation to costs to characterize the failings of the school funding formula. So he crafted his own legal standard by which he evaluated the formula and declared it to be unconstitutional. And that wasn't really anchored to the precedent setting cases of Horton v. Meskel and others that use language around how it should be evaluated for constitutionality, right? So now typically that, that goes up to the higher court on appeal, right? And typically when a high court looks and sees that a lower court judge has not 
appropriate, maybe the lower court judge has looked at all the facts correctly and, and, and compiled the factual record appropriately. But if the, if the lower court judge has applied incorrect or faulty legal reasoning or standards, a high court would remand that case back to the lower court to apply the correct standard. That's what the high court, in my view, should have done in Connecticut, not to say he didn't apply the right standard and he didn't find that it failed on the right standard because he didn't apply it. Therefore, <laughs> they basically overruled him without sending it back to him to apply the right standard. Um, and that that was really, I mean, unfortunate is perhaps the kindest word I can attach to that because it, 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 right, it leaves it in the hands of the legislature a legislature that for decades on end has let districts like Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Britain, and New London, and, uh, and uh, Danbury just flounder with inadequate funding. Um, so what, what makes one think that now that they've been given a pass by the court, they're going to step up, right? So throwing the, kids under the, throwing the kids under the bus is definitely a good description. Um, and it was on a basis that was in my view, inappropriate, should have been remanded with specific direction to the lower court judge on how to evaluate what he perceived to be the problems with respect to the appropriate constitutional standard. And he could have still justified it being unconstitutional on the precedent, the precedential standard, which was what the plaintiff's attorneys were arguing. <laughs> so that's my long-winded explanation for how no, this... No. Fell apart this, legally. This is this is the stuff we turn to our courts time and time again to remedy the situations that are unjust and unfair. And and I'd be the first to remind people that our Supreme Courts have decided they ruled on the Dred Scott decision. They were the courts that said women don't deserve the right to vote. They were the courts that supported Jim Crow. So I'm not saying, but we do turn to those courts, especially in modern times, we believe that. Uh, Robert, could you give us a, I want you to give us a little bit of the Connecticut story, but also I really want you to explain the Chef versus O'Neill uh, concept that there was a lot of equity in that case that we have forgotten about. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, oftentimes, and there, there's, there are scholars that have looked at um, nationally, but also Connecticut, the sort of uh, what seems to be sometimes a competition between uh, understanding what racial desegregation of schools looks like uh, versus school funding. And they're also often pitted against each other. And I think what's interesting is that um, in a place like Connecticut, um, there's been these instances in which uh, there are kind of uh, contrasts and, and, and comparisons. So like, for example, um, when the Horton versus Mesco case came up uh, to think about how schools can be more equitably funded. In other words, not just relying on property taxes to fund schools, but having uh, what they eventually called a cost-sharing mechanism where the state provides uh, the needed support for public schools. I'm, I'm sort of simplifying it in some ways, but um, there was, in the Hartford Current, there was a report that said, you know, the debate about funding schools uh, equitably was going to be separated from racial desegregation of schools. So they were separated at the sort of, uh, in, in terms of the legislature, uh, later on, uh, when the uh, the Chef versus O'Neill case came up uh, in 1989, um, and then the, there were uh, instances in which the, those uh, plaintiffs sort of asked. Um, there's a document from the Chef uh, uh, the Chef sort of coalition um, in which their first 
point was we want schools to have the resources and support and make it equitably funded. That was actually number one on their agenda. And then number two is they said, if, if and when schools are funded equitably, then we can talk about how schools might be desegregated in terms of race. Um, and I can, you know, I could share that document later on uh, with folks. Um, it's, but what's interesting about it is that there's these sort of like, um, you know, and this is what other scholars have, have talked about in other places around the country is this sort of debate about, you know, how do we fund schools equitably, but then deal with desegregation? And there's, it's not always a competition in terms of like the concepts that the people are putting forward, the, the activists, the plaintiffs, and so on. Um, it's oftentimes sort of uh, the state or the, the uh, state of house of reps or whoever, Congress, whatever, that want to sort of separate the two th ideas uh, into something different. And so I think what's important, what's important to take away from this is um, even someone like uh, the late uh, Diane Kaplan DeVries said, even if we make magnet schools, it doesn't always make equitable funding or even adequate funding for all schools in a place, right? So in a place like Hartford, we may have a number of magnet schools in the region. New Haven has a number of them as well, but that doesn't necessarily equate to uh, adequate funding for all the schools that most need them in all the cities in Connecticut, uh, in all the places, you know. So um, I just, I wanted to tie that in because I, I wanted to make sure that we we don't go into this um, sort of, uh, this sort of side note about you know, well, what about one or the other? What about desegregation or what about adequate funding? And like, even the people that pushed them sort of had this idea of like, what about both, right? And so I just wanted to put that into sort of a context. I see, Jesse, you have, you wanted to add something, Bruce, you wanted to add something, but uh, that's just a quick little sort of primer about just to sort of think about these cases a little bit differently in terms of like how they were, how they were brought forward and how they were thought about and then how they were responded to by the state of Connecticut. I'm going to say, Bruce, you could add something to that. Yeah, it's it's really it's interesting because I think it's like we're, we're just getting back to a point now where we're willing to look at these things as inextricably linked because we're, we're also willing to you know, kind of grasp this idea that that so many you know dec decades, centuries of different practices involving racial discrimination are what led to these economic inequalities that are tied in with schooling inequality. But if we go back to kind of the, the origins of the school funding court cases, school funding court cases um, brought in federal court and concurrently in California and then right after that in a handful of other states where the, the concept behind them came about in the late 1960s. And it really was a push by a group of legal scholars to pursue a non-racial legal angle to get away from all the DSEG litigation that was going on at the time. So it was really founded as this separate entity without focusing on race. And in fact, the de-emphasis on racial disparities in cases like um, San Antonio versus Rodriguez really, I think, undermined the quality of those cases. The fact that they tried to make them all about wealth and income disparity and didn't point out that there was such a strong overlay with race um, really kind of took some of the punch out of those cases. So these school funding cases were kind of founded out of a a non-racial angle when people thought there, there was just too much tension around race issues and deseg litigation in the 1960s. So, and, and we kept going with that for too long. Yeah, they, they, how, how they could be separate, I, I don't really understand. And, and the whole idea of desegregation, uh, I've often gone down to Selma, Alabama for the educational summit on Jubilee Days. 
And we often talk about educators, black educators in Selma, will talk about uh, great uh, segregated black schools with great teachers and great leaders and you know lacking resources and stuff. But they had uh, black teachers who understood their history over there. But they always they'll always make the statement. Uh, someone, some educator in the room, some community leader will always say, "We didn't want segregation because we wanted to sit next to white children." We wanted segregation because we knew white people in America are what would reject justice for our children. The only best chance that a black child had at a high quality, equitable education was if they were in, if they were uh, given access or shared segregation, desegregation, ended segregation. Uh, so that concept to separate and Robert, you're exactly right. We, how do we separate them? For me, this, this idea, you know, I've come to the piece that, <clears throat> that this issue is so much about systemic racism. It's not just, just Brown versus the board of Topeka. It's not just Plessy versus Ferguson. I mean, I'm in Connecticut. <clears throat> we, we've got in Connecticut, we burnt down, uh, and scandals, uh, School for Black Girls. We burnt it down in, in the time of abolition and chased her out of the state. Uh, we've got all kinds of, we had black laws against, against children being educated children of color. Uh, you know, so this concept that race <coughs> and equity can be separated, I think you're right on the, you're, you're, you're so on target, Bruce, that, that it's unbelievable. We cannot separate them. And, 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 and I would say that uh, my, I, I grew up in diverse communities. I'm really the, the only white boy in those communities that I grew up. And I benefited uh, by, by being welcomed and embraced by people of color in those communities. And, and, but when I look at that, my, 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 my Latin friends, uh, they don't mind me in the classroom and stuff, but they don't believe the future of their child's education is that they sit next to somebody like me or my black friends, the same, same, same concept. So Robert, <clears throat> take us back there one time. How can we, can we formulate this argument that somehow rekindles the, the, the battle for improving our schools for all children? And do, do we need to, can, do we need to break them apart or can we bring them together? I'm giving you the hard question, Robert. Well, I think let let's situate it. Maybe um, you know, like looking forward, well, let's look where we're, where we're at first. So, uh, the decision of the uh, again, McCausher, um, the the judge in the C. Jeff case, came up with some really interesting things. And I want to give you like direct quotes and compare them to what families are saying, because that's sort of my you know my wheelhouse is like you know what are families, what are educators saying about what are the resources in their schools and how do we, how do we compare them and. Bruce does a fantastic job of in his reports of using sort of um, of quantitative data and sort of analyzing that. So let me give you just like a comparison of some qualitative responses real quick. So the the judge in the CJF case said that uh, Connecticut already quote spends more than the bare minimum on schools. Okay, that's fine. So that that might be you know might say yeah Connecticut does a decent job, but then he goes forward and says uh, the lack of adequate resources is anecdotal. Um, and then said further, there is no proof of a statewide problem caused by the state sending school districts too little money. Okay, so, you know, like moving forward, let's look 
within the last couple of years, right? I, I did a study on uh, how parents sort of responded to school closures that were temporary during the COVID epidemic, right? Were they going to go remote or in person? And here's one, one, at least one parent and several others said about resources. But I want to share this, this quotation with you. Um, this is a Latino family wrote, uh, school buildings are not any safer now simply because everyone is asked to wear a mask. Uh, I never removed the school district's name. Buildings are old with poor ventilation, not many windows, high class sizes, um, et cetera. Social distancing when possible does not make me feel confident in sending my child to school. And so this person chose remote learning. This was back in 2020. And so I'm reading that and I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, you have the judge a couple of years ago saying, no, schools are funded just the way they need to be. And then you have a number of parents in a study deciding whether they're going to go to remote school or in-person school back in 2020. It's sort of like the quote unquote height of the pandemic. And they're saying, no, class sizes are big and I don't feel necessarily safe in a pandemic at this particular moment to come back. And so you start to process that. And if you look even further, and this is something that Bruce looked at as well, you look even further, the sort of percentage of parents that picked remote learning in particular districts sort of correlates to uh, whether the city, that particular public school district, has been funded sufficiently or uh, not sufficiently, according to what Bruce Baker has put together. So when you start to add things up, I think we need to move forward by looking at what our parents, what our families, what our students, and, and, and also educators experiencing, because there's some disconnect between what parents said at, in this particular study and what the data shows about who is who has sort of adequate funding to provide the resources that they need, including sort of concrete things like class size, for example. So I want to, I'll turn it over to Bruce because I know he has, I know he wants to jump in, but uh, I just wanted to point that as like, so you you asked me, what do we need to do? Moving forward, what we need to do is listen to what, uh, not just add the data that, that Bruce Baker and other, and his colleagues have put together, but also what are folks saying about what are the resources do they have? Do they have the adequacy, uh, not just you know in terms of like the, the funding, but is the funding producing the things that we would put in the basket of, of stuff that people would need to ha- have a fully adequate uh, public school education, libraries, class sizes, and so on and so forth. So I'll leave it there and I'll turn it over to, 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 to Bruce. Yeah, libraries, class sizes, safe and healthy, uh, well-ventilated spaces and all that. And I mean, the really striking thing about Connecticut is, right, I mean, Mokausher got hung up on the minimum threshold problem, but really recognized the extent of the disparities. And at the bottom end, where there were the biggest funding gaps, which was part of my testimony, there were also the least well-paid teachers and the largest class sizes. And all those things linked up in very simple and straightforward ways. And then we got to see very clearly how that played out when when COVID hits, that the schools that had the fewest resources or the biggest funding gaps with respect to what they needed and the least well-paid teachers and the largest class sizes, the most crowded spaces, which were also the lower quality, less well-ventilated spaces in older buildings, those places couldn't, on the one hand, they themselves couldn't open and operate in-person learning as much as other places. And on the other hand, you know, the, the people in those communities saw that, knew that, and were that much more tentative about diving in. All of these stories, you know, the stories don't always reconcile as, as cleanly in, in other states and contexts where I've worked. But kind of like in, in Connecticut, we, we know where the problems are, in part because they've been in the same damn places for decades, and we just not solve them. And the same people have seen them in their community generation after generation 
um, and they've seen them not be solved. So there becomes a, you know, a, a distrust that they ever will be. And, it, and, and that's heightened in a context of something like COVID. Um, I, you know, I think when it gets to the problem solving thing that, that um, Jesse, Jesse brought up, um, one of the things I've tried to do in the, in the language um, in a lot of my reports is to really, we, we, historically, we talked about school funding disparities being these kind of economic and wealth-related disparities that fall disparately by race. These are disparities that, for the most part, were actually created by racism and discrimination and happened to fall disparately by economic measures, right? Because we created economic disparities by the way we force and channel people by, uh, by race into certain housing. And, and it's, we, we have a segregation um, a, a discrimination, a report we came out with through the Shanker Institute. Um, and we looked at seven metros across the country and the Hartford area was one, um, where we mapped all the different practices from the early 1900s until now um, for how Blacks and Latinos are steered toward only allowed to rent in by property in certain neighborhoods, reinforcing housing discrimination and segregation for decades, for you know, really over a century, all the way up until now. I think there's a great John Oliver did a segment on this stuff, and I, I, he had this one quote, um, something to the effect of these are real damages that we've put upon, you know. People who are, you know, here among us here and now. It's not like we're talking about something that was done as a policy in the 1800s, right? This is, there's a string of policies that bring us to now, and and to some extent, the uh, the responses to these, the bold steps toward fixing them, can be framed from a reparations standpoint. That we need to take strong reparatory measures to treat better those communities that really all the way up until now and still ongoing, we've continued to forcibly disadvantage. So this, this yeah. is where the activist in me steps in. This is where uh, when Moro Monday says, hey, Jesse, can you get arrested for us? And I say, <laughs> yeah. This is when, when I march time and time again. I've done two 400 mile walks fighting high stakes assessment and inequity in our public schools from Connecticut to DC. Uh, I've been fighting this battle for a long time. And I remember something and I was there. I said in 63, I was only eight years old. I don't really remember much, but you, you remember years later, memoir. And I remember that Dr. King didn't come say, we want reparations. He said, I come to DC to collect the IOU, the check that the United States government owes the Negro people. That's what he went to D.C. about. And you see, this isn't reparations. This is nothing to do with reparations. I mean, I understand that, Bruce concept. This okay. is about what is legitimately owed to a people who have been victimized. As, as Coretta Scott King said, if you commit a, a, a poor education, lack of, of, of health care, uh, lack of programs for the poor children, is violence against children. So I would argue that we have had violence against children long, long enough. So I do, I do want us to talk about the policy solutions. You do have them over there. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, it's part of me that says, listen, parents, if you're not at the schoolhouse store, if you're not at the board of education, you don't need to go there to complain about library books. You need to go there to complain about injustice. So I want to bring us to that. But but one one point before I go, and I'm going to come back to you, Bruce, because I think you're going to help us with this. 
I took a group of teachers from the Bahamas that were visiting Central Connecticut State University. And my job is like, take you around the schools. And we went to a Farmington school, nice, small, little elementary school in Farmington. I think less than 300 students at the time. And then we and, and, and they went there and they found that, that. And so these are all teachers from the Bahamas with me. And they're going visiting my former students who are literacy specialists and, and literacy consultants at the school. And there are two full-timers, two certified part-timers, and there's a, a, a librarian just for the level book library room over there in there. And, and they're like, wow, this is great. How do you do it? And then I took them to Patanzas Middle School, Patanzas Elementary School, who was supposed to be called the reading school in, in, uh, in Hoffitt. And when they went to Patanzas and they looked and they said, how could this be? How could this be? How could you have, and, and not only that, when they were in the farm and then they asked them, well, how many children do you have in need? And, and the people started going like this, one, two, they started counting on their fingers. And they came up with something like 25 kids in this whole school that were getting four, four adults, four certified staff members giving them results. But Tansas couldn't even give us the number. If we looked at, at the data, it was near 70% of their students. So, so one of those things I think Bruce, that I, I, I know that this is what you've been working on and our policy uh, uh, advocates are working on. A re-examination of a school funding formula that is so rooted in the algorithm of injustice. Uh, what, what other policy, if we're gonna relook at school funding formula, what other ways? Cause I'm also, year after year, schools are patted on the back. You've done a good job, Connecticut. I think we got a B or something or a B plus uh, for <laughs> equity. And I'm like, B plus, you, I fail you. So tell us what we can do to reimagine the school formula. You know, reward schools, reward a state for doing, for bringing equity. I, I have, yeah. New Britain schools have no librarians. I have a magnet school in Hartford that has no library. You tell me. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, actually, Rob wrote an outline. We put it in the CT mirror a couple of years ago saying, here's what you got to do to fix it. Um, uh, it, it yeah, right. On This is the other thing is what you say on average, Connecticut kids are doing fine, right? That they get a B or whatever. Um, there, there was a the lawyers in their closing arguments in a Kansas court case said the same that 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 on on average Kansas children are doing just fine. The judge said the the judge in that case, lower court judge said, um, this case is about the rest of them. Or it was most Kansas children are doing just fine. He said, well, this case is about the rest of them, not not the uh, um, because there are those huge inequities. So the inequities in Connecticut are much worse than uh, than in Kansas, um, and for a lot of reasons. One, the the court actually has stepped in time and time again in Kansas, and the legislature has been more responsive to actually designing thoughtful, empirically driven remedies. Um, wrote a whole book about that. A book I couldn't possibly write about Connecticut with the same positive framing. Um, so. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, in general, the idea is that we have to design school funding. The, the goal of a school funding formula is to provide the resources such that every kid has equal opportunity to strive for the same high common outcomes. We want to give these kids equal opportunities to achieve high common outcomes, whether they're in New Britain or Farmington, whether they're in uh, Know, whether they're in Waterbury or down in down in Greenwich or New Canaan, right? All and and in some settings it costs more 
than others because you got to be able to provide the additional support services, multiple languages, more you know, smaller classes, um, to be able to give the kids in high poverty um, settings the same opportunities as you would give to kids in in New Canaan or Farmington um, to get to those outcomes in part because of the amount of home resources poured into those kids. And no state goes so far as to really provide legitimate equal opportunity. Providing legitimate equal opportunity really requires a highly progressive funding system, one that puts more money where more is needed. Connecticut still leans the opposite direction. There's less money where more is needed. That's, you know, step one. And there are, you know, there's well-accepted kind of conceptual framing around that that state legislatures and courts have adopted across the country. And there are empirical methods that are useful for evaluating that and designing a formula around it. An economist from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston actually modeled Connecticut that way to show what you would need to provide equal opportunity. Um, My colleagues and I recently did a study for the state of Vermont and the state of Vermont recalibrated its student need adjustments around those, you know, analyses that we provided them. We did a study for New Hampshire, which they, you know, summarily ignored, but, you know, that happens too. Um, And the same approaches have been used to guide the Kansas courts in figuring out how to push their legislature to bend the formula toward progressiveness, right? It's never perfect. It never gets really fixed. But my thought is little judicial pressure, you throw, you toss some decent empirical evidence into, into the political scrum, and hopefully what comes out the backside is a formula for funding schools that is bent more towards justice than what we have now. And, and Connecticut is bent against justice and it's bent against justice because of the way the state has been so highly residentially segregated along racial and economic lines for so long and continuously with the real estate steering and rental access and everything else. So. Yeah, you got to get some good information, a little judicial pressure, and you can bend it toward a progressive funding formula. We rate in our national report, we say, yeah, education, the effort Connecticut puts up, the percent of its economy spent on schools is average nationally. It's statewide. Its overall adequacy is pretty good. But Connecticut is one of the worst in the country on equal opportunity at the uh, schoolfinancedata.org national report. It's in the severely low equal opportunity category. Um, So average spending, yeah, it's pretty high, but the systematic disadvantaging of the same communities over and over again, just puts it among the worst on equal opportunity. Perfect, Robert. I just wanted to throw out a a follow-up question to, uh, uh, I could dare say my colleague, Bruce here, my co-writer. Would you say that, uh, because I wonder if there's, would you say there are two things at, at play that there are the there's the formula? In other words, the the sort of numerical equation that says, here's what we're going to provide to different districts based on their need. And there's the what the governor and, uh, you know, state of um, the state reps, you know, and so on and so forth. What the legislature is going to provide. Are those two different things? Are they the same? Uh, do we have to sort of take both of them into account? Uh, I just want to throw that out there because I think yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like having a car and not putting gas in it, right? I mean, it's often the case that a state will adopt a funding formula. New Jersey, New Jersey adopted a new formula in two thousand nine, 
the recession hit and they never funded it. They still don't fully fund it. So equal opportunity has really kind of waned over time in New Jersey. New York State said they adopted a pretty crummy formula, but then they chose not to even fund their crummy formula. Um, so you gotta, you gotta adopt it. You gotta develop the right framework. You gotta calibrate that framework for equal opportunity. And then you actually have to fund it through the annual budgeting. And you've got to, in Connecticut, you've also got to clean up some of these issues of how the state and local money come together, um, around these issues of municipally, you know, fiscal, fiscally dependent districts where the school district is dependent on the city budget. You got to have hard mandates on that local contribution, such that when you add the state aid to it, it actually reaches that adequacy level of funding that you need to get the job done. So there's a lot of tightening up that needs to be done in Connecticut. In addition to figuring out what it's going to cost to provide equal opportunity, the state funding it and the state obligating the local contribution to fund it, um, whether by school district taxation or municipal fiscal dependence. Bridgeport was a problem in one of our earlier studies in that very way. Before That's your hometown, I, right, Rob? Yeah. yeah. I wanted I'm to mention to... about, I'm going to turn it over to, to Jesse. I'm sorry, I, but I, I want to go back to Bridgeport in a minute. Go ahead, Jesse. Sorry. I, I just wanted to remind us about this idea that uh, this IOU. Well, in 1967, the United States of America passed an Elementary and Secondary Education Act. One that in the legislation, written into the legislation, signed by the president, approved by Congress, approved by the Senate, was a 40% increase in funding for schools in poor urban and rural communities. And I will say that 40% increase was never delivered. If I add that up, if I add it up to the promise, it comes out to trillions of dollars. And, and if, I, if I go back to, you know, Texas, they say that Texas looks at their third grade reading scores to predict how many prisons that they, that they need to build. And, 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 you know, Horace Mann said, money for, for schools now or prisons later. So that piece, so go ahead, Robert. I'm, I'm just like, this isn't, I'm not, I don't think black and brown people, they're United States citizens of our nation. The parents of special education children are not foreigners. They are citizens of our nation. And they're not asking for more. They're asking for what's right and what's fair and what's just. The same thing that every other child gets. Go ahead, Robert. I'm on that platform too long. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, moving forward, um, you know, and I'll use Bridgeport maybe as a, as a little case in a second. But, uh, you know, moving forward, I appreciated what Bruce had to say about, you know, uh, you know, one, at least one of the steps and where we're going to move forward in terms of uh, more adequate funding. Um, yes, there's pushing the pushing the legislature. Yes, there's pushing pushing the governor. But then, like, um, you know, there's other steps that maybe potentially uh, need to happen as well. Where, um, you know, does there need to be um, sort of more uh, maybe cohesion? Is not the the correct word, but um, you know, there's different groups right now uh, that that work for parents and even educators, and they're all sort of working for different things at this point. It's sort of interesting. Like you have one group pushing for more uh, bilingual interpreters, you have another group, uh, um, you know, pushing for libraries. You have a, a librarians. There's sort of like we're sort of at this interesting point where like you know other folks are saying uh, safety issues, and they're even defining safety in very different ways. Um, so. Uh, everyone's sort of on a little bit of different page, depending on where you are in, in, in the state. So perhaps some sort of like um, more um, sort 
sort of group consciousness or cohesion about what's actually being pushed for uh, might be might be fruitful as another step. But let's look at like Bridgeport, for example. Uh, in Bruce's recent report, he did a state by state. Uh, he and his colleagues uh, did a state by state analysis, and they looked at different cities that um, are sort of above or below uh, uh, adequacy in terms of adequate spending. And they said in the 10 largest Connecticut school districts, and Bridgeport was actually negative 22% uh, below adequate spending. Uh, and that was the highest in terms of below. Uh, also, Hartford was in that mix and New Britain was in that mix as well. Um, you know, Bridgeport, we look back uh, and they took a path differently in the 70s and 80s, not doing as many interdistrict magnet schools as New Haven and Hartford did, which I, I think Bruce has also mentioned this before in other work, sort of uplifted them in terms of the resources that they needed uh, in terms of uh, funding. Um, and then Bridgeport, um, you know, was was actually brought up by the CJF uh, the CJF judge. This uh, CJF judge was saying, um, you know, rather than looking at test scores as like a benchmark uh, to see who needs more support, he looked at it as who doesn't need more support. It was very very unusual, and he said he said this uh, that we needed uh, more consequences, more substantial consequences for for districts that aren't doing well on like standardized test scores. And you're like scratching my head, like. Well, doesn't that mean that perhaps they need more resources? And he literally listed Bridgeport as one of them. And he said, there is this is a quote, the judge stated, there is no room for a slack system to support cities like Bridgeport. And it's sort of interesting that like, you know, again, sort of group consciousness is like this idea of like, um, you know, if the judges in court cases are looking at test scores, standardized test scores and saying, this is a metric of who should get more resources or not, it's extremely problematic in terms of what, what this particular judge, how they understand what standardized test scores are, 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 are meant to do and also how we're using them, how we're like actually like um, sort of using them to sort of provide uh, the sort of uh, equity in terms of funding and adequacy in terms of funding. So I just wanted to throw that out there that like, um, you know, more generally a bit of better understanding of, uh, you know, what numbers we're looking at and what the data is sort of telling us about different places. Um, Cause I like, you look at, you know, you look at Bruce Baker's data and you're saying, no, Bridgeport actually needs more funding than it's getting uh, relative to other districts in Connecticut. Um, and, you know, part of that reason is because they didn't take the path of getting that extra funding with the magnet schools. It's sort of, it's sort of a different case, but still, it's still sort of striking that it's still out there. And then you have a judge saying, "Nope, they're ba they're bad test scores. We don't need to give them any more money." No, nope. well, so I'm gonna I'll turn it over to Bruce, yeah, but I just yeah. wanted to point out that that's <laughs> yeah, it's, and that's it's the thing is our analyses, and this is where and this is where it just gets confusing for a judge, and sometimes they write wacky stuff like that. Right. I mean, where, in fact, our analyses in these new models, which are based on the same kinds of concepts we used in the testimony for CJEP, um, say that, you know, in, in part, this money, the money that's there is insufficient to provide these kids equal opportunity to achieve certain outcomes, among which are the test scores. Right? The disparities we see in that the test scores are a signal produced by the system and a signal that invariably just shows us those deep underlying racial and economic disparities, right? And, and it would be nice, in fact, among all other things in correcting equal opportunity to be able to make this system more equitable in a way that could also even produce more equitable test scores if they are a signal of the deep underlying inequities, 
right? And and in fact, you know, predictive of later points in the academic pipeline. So, I mean, that's, but it's that that whole kind of messiness of the relationship between adequate or not resources toward achieving some outcomes where the test scores are measures of the outcomes. And then you got other experts coming in for the state saying, nah, every district just has to be smarter in how they use the resources they have. If you're a district with greater needs and fewer resources, you just gotta be even smarter about it. Well, that's an unfair requirement right there. Um, but it it dizzies the judge, just like I wrote, I wrote about one of the experts on the other side kind of calling him education's merchant merchant of doubt, you know, much like the uh, merchants of doubt who uh, who came in and kind of muddied the, uh, the the evidence around, you know, linking, you know, tobacco use to uh, to cancer, right? This guy will come in and say, well, no, they just got to use, there's no relationship. I can throw all these pictures of statistics up that show no relationship between the money and the test scores. And someone like Mo Kasher gets confused and thinks, okay, well, then we just got to tell Bridgeport to do better. Um, so I would call yeah. those people the elephants in the room. So I would be looking at, think of all the promises that this nation has put into education reforms, charter schools, magnet schools, all kinds of programs, all, uh, all kinds of special things that are created that cost bureaucracy, that cost billions of dollars and 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 don't we ever look at the data and say what have you delivered? So I'm not I'm not so when I look at that stuff, when I look at at, a, at, a, at while I I I understand the need for uh, our, our magnet schools, I also question the concept: why isn't every school a magnet school? Why isn't every school uh, uh, there's one of the most beautiful magnet schools right now in Connecticut at the Anna Grace. Uh, academy. It is beautiful. I have teachers who will sub there, do there in my classes and just talk about how beautiful and amazing, how special, and they dream of teaching there. But doesn't every parent deserve an Anna Grace Academy? And Robert, I want to go to you because you have two young babies. Uh, you know, if you if you see Robert on Facebook, you see those babies all the time. Robert, tell us what what, what can we give? What can we do? to keep you in Hartford, to keep you in Connecticut, to keep the faith of you and your wife in our public schools? Well, I think it's like, you know, every as you kind of mentioned, every school needs the sort of the rich experiences. And this is not just me speaking. This is also like folks like groups like CJEF, rich experiences uh, in all public schools. Uh, and that means, you know, adequate, you know, adequate funding that produces reasonable class sizes, that has skilled teachers that can keep teachers in a, in a, in a building, in a district and so on, um, that has the sort of, uh, you know, the, um, I don't wanna say, uh, how, would, how would you say it? the uh, They call them specials, right? Like specials, like you have library, you have uh, technology class, you have uh, physical education and so on and so forth, science. Um, that's not just like as the, the judge in the CJF case sort of said, no, reading and math, that's all that's all we need. That's all you get. That's not a rich that's not a rich sort of educational experience that every kid should have. Um, and what it does is like it it limits uh for for kids in a place like Hartford, in a place like Bridgeport, it limits what's available to them and what supports them and what enriches their lives, uh, but other places can get. And so 
it's like, yeah, well, if Hartford can't provide that, then people leave and they move. And if you look at some of the numbers, uh, Latinos and black folks have moved out of Hartford over the last 20 years. Like they they said, the government's not going to help us in our schools. We're going to leave. And they did that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just sort of sort of situating this sort of in sort of the context and sort of uh, what we need moving forward, I think, is, uh, you know, thinking about the the points of pressure where there are. You, you had mentioned that there's like legislators. Um, I had mentioned thinking more consciously and thinking about like letting people know, like, hey, Bridgeport, did you know that, you know, you're below the funding that's needed to produce an adequate education? Like those sort of like, uh, you know, not every family, not every uh, person knows that they might know their experience in a place, but not necessarily connect it to some of the sort of the data that's available out there. Um, but I think there just needs to be, we need to think about more where some of the pressure points are in terms of, uh, you know, getting the legislature, getting, you know, folks to sort of uh, push more in terms of what, uh, you know, what is being offered. Um, and it's a difficult time. So I'm not going to say that's an easy thing. You know, it's it's a difficult time economically, health-wise, and so on and so forth. But um, that's sort of my, my thing looking at the next year is like, where are those pressure points, um, you know, in the legislature, uh, in in communities with groups connecting with folks? So, um, I'll turn it over to Bruce. What do you think? Bruce, Thirty yeah, seconds. Uh, all right. Yeah. So I, I think Rob, Rob makes a really good point here. He made a, a great one a few minutes ago too about that. You get all these different groups that are lobbying for different things that they want to see in school, and and almost all of those things have as a prerequisite condition adequate funding, right? So can we convince all those groups kind of rally around the prerequisite condition together, knowing that that sets the stage for the rest, and then we follow with the rest. Let's like get the, those conditions established and then move forward on how we want to use and allocate this adequate funding. But if it's not there, we can't use it. So I'll leave us with what my feeling is we need a Dr. King moment. We need a uh, Rosa Parks moment. We need a Nelson Mandela moment. We need an uprising of people to come together to demand of their legislators. If half of our, our children in our schools now are children of color, if they left our schools, our schools collapse. And those rest of those kids that get the best, they won't have public schools to go to. And that's and so I believe that we need to bring the policy and the moral fight. And I'm ready for the moral fight. How you Happy holidays. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Yeah, this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go Way too long, we faced them storms, now you